0: Today's lesson comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the gospel of Christ.
1: Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth make sense because they are inspired by your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a familiar pattern in today's gospel. We see Jesus teaching, his disciples getting it wrong, and Jesus correcting. After Jesus corrects, I often get the sense that the disciples still don't get it. And that's reinforced by the repetitive nature of the themes that Jesus teaches on and the questions that the disciples ask or don't ask as is in the case today. I think that's worth bearing in mind as we approach familiar bible passages. Just because we've read it before or heard some sermons Doesn't necessarily mean that we've really got it. The greatest evidence of us really getting a teaching of Jesus is that it's demonstrable in our lives. And I think today's passage, while amongst the more familiar, is probably up there with the hardest to demonstrate practically in our lives the first will be last, and the last will be first, or similar combinations of those words, are scattered through the Gospels and expanded on in the epistles in the New Testament. But I have to admit that I struggle wrestling with verse 35, because I'm intrinsically a competitive person. I've quoted this verse heaps of times, but that's Normally to encourage a young person not to push themselves ahead of others or to make a joke when I'm at the end of a queue or to give an excuse for myself when I haven't been performing as well as I'd like. But there's so much more to this teaching of Jesus. I do know that, but I wonder whether my innate competitiveness acts as a barrier For going deeper. I will joke that a game, a sport, or any form of competitive endeavor is not worth playing unless you're trying to win. I joke, but if I'm honest, it's how I naturally approach most things in life. You see, I I know that our culture rewards winners. Our culture sometimes will console those who try their best, But my goodness, if you give up or you don't even try, how quickly our culture will turn on you. Just ask Nick Kyrgios. Yes, there are some spheres in life where we all get awards for participation. But they seem to be few and far between and often criticised in our highly competitive, measured and ranked Western world. My desire to win if I allowed myself to be psychoanalyzed would likely find its root in my own insecurity. If I can show myself to be better than you, then I don't have to deal with my own frailness. Growing up, I often felt like I was the new kid, the one who wasn't part of the main group. Moving around a lot as a child, probably didn't help that, but my personal insecurity is probably echoed by most people most of the time, at different points throughout their lives. But I had this mindset that if I was competitive, and if I actually won from time to time, then I could take my place with those who I thought and saw as achievers, But I've come to understand that how I regard myself in the world directly impacts how I regard others. If I find myself measuring myself against the culture of the world, then I find myself living in a tension between never being quite enough, but always trying to advance or differentiate myself at the expense of another person. But when I truly see myself as I am seen by God, then that is a whole different picture. I see myself as fearfully and wonderfully made, loved, forgiven, chosen, a child of God, as we sang this morning, uniquely gifted, blessed, and so much more. When I look to Jesus, I see the type of people that Jesus welcomed, included, and invited to sit at his table, to have a meal with someone in a Jewish culture, was an ultimate sign of welcome, acceptance, and inclusion. But if you look through the Gospels and and take a tally of who Jesus ate with and interacted with, you'll find A wide range of people who were normally unwelcome by society's standards. He even welcomed and ate with the one person who would ultimately betray him Judas. Try and fathom that to have someone around your table and include the person who you know will ultimately let you down. That's radical. The child that Jesus uses in today's passage is not to draw the group's attention to the cute kid in the corner. But in that culture at that time was to look around the room and to find the person of lowest status. The child, a young child, had no status, even from an affluent family. I'm sure it had something to do with the high infant mortality rates of the time. But pointing to a, attention to a child who had and was seen to have no status at all and to offer, more so to command, welcome and inclusion to them would have been something that would have really challenged those who were gathered in the room once we realize that there is a place for even us once we find our own identity in jesus once we begin to focus more and more on jesus and how jesus sees us we can't help being drawn away from ourselves and towards others because that is the pattern that jesus always worked with to look towards the other. The disciples, though, so, were constantly getting the message of Jesus half right. If you were with us last week, uh, you would have heard Marianne preach on Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. But then he got it horribly wrong and got reprimanded again. That pattern that we see: Jesus teaches, disciples get it wrong, Jesus corrects. That happened last week too. Peter only wanted Jesus to be the type of Messiah that he thought Jesus should be, not the one for which Jesus came to be. But if we only get the teaching right about Jesus seeing us as God sees us, rather than the world seeing us, then we're only getting that half right if we miss the Bit about transforming our perspective of how we see others. I did realise as I was preparing this message this morning that I'm doubly challenged in trying to get that message right because not only am I competitive by nature, I am also an accountant. I've been taught to evaluate situations in terms of what is called a cost benefit analysis. If the benefits outweigh the costs, then it is worthy of my time and attention. But if the costs outweigh the benefits, then we need to shift our attention and our energy and our efforts in other directions. But this is not so in God's economy. Righteousness is a recurring theme throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I was recently reminded of my favorite definition of righteousness, biblical righteousness particularly. Righteousness is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of another. Now, where a cost-benefit analysis would say that you would Should be doing something, um, this definition of righteousness would suggest that we perhaps should be doing the thing that a cost benefit analysis should tell us that we should be avoiding. It's God's upside down economy, if you like. You see throughout the gospel, Jesus being a, a deliberate critique of the righteous in the society of his time, because as he looked at them, they weren't righteous at all, because they were preferring themselves. They were increasing their status and seeking attention at the expense of others, particularly the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And this was not righteousness as God had intended. Throughout the Old Testament, this beautiful echo Remember how we were slaves in Egypt and how we were treated. We should not treat others the way that we were treated. Somehow the culture at that time had been captured by a sense of righteousness, which was about elevating one's status. And Jesus came to disrupt that economy. But I can't help but wonder if we've been captured, the church and its members included, by a modern-day version of exactly the same thing. And I can't help but wonder whether the last 18 months has amplified this for us. There's no doubt that we are living through a season, hopefully it's a season, of challenge at the moment. But I wonder for many of us, if our world has contracted Somewhat. I know that at the tap of a finger we have connection accessible, more so now than at any time in human history. But I wonder if our actual circles of connection, the numbers of people that we are connected with, has actually got smaller. And so I ask myself, has my world got smaller recently? I think it has. I go out less. I run into less people over at the town center that I know. Less people are physically coming to our church building. So on Sundays and through the week, I'm interacting with them less or less people. I see my extended family less. I don't get to spend as much time with my friends, particularly those in other states. I could go on. The danger of a contracting worldview is that while we are connecting, interacting, and thinking less about a wider group of people, we probably aren't thinking about ourselves any less. In fact, if you're thinking about the ratio, if we're thinking about less people, we actually are creating more more time and energy to think about ourselves more. And one of the criticisms I have of my own life in the last 18 months is that I've found myself more regularly slipping into a woe is me, what about me type of mentality. I know that we're all good, compassionate Christian folk and we do feel for those who are in worse situations than we find ourselves in, especially for those of us living in the charmed state of Queensland. But how are we practically and regularly disadvantaging ourselves for the advantage of another? And how does that balance with the time and energy we are putting into ourselves and those for whom we derive some form of benefit from, whether that be emotional, physical, financial, or some other form of relational benefit? This week, I came across what I think is the best expression of how we can live like we actually believe that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that is to live a beautifully compelling alternate way of life. I just fell in love with that phrase. Beautifully compelling alternate way of life. I take no credit for it. It's not mine, Uh, so you can use it. (laughs) Most preachers pinch their stuff from other people. Uh, I'm no exception. But I just haven't been able to get that phrase out of my head. But equally, I've been challenged by it. Do we actually live in a way that is a real example of what it's like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ? And do people notice that and look at us and say, oh, that's what it's like to believe in Jesus. Are our lives both beautifully compelling and alternate, or are we just like everyone else who's trying to live the good life? We feel bad for others, we pray for them, but we don't actually do anything to disadvantage us too much or for too long. I know it's a big thing to aspire to. If I'm honest, I'm not sure that my life is that beautifully compelling or that alternate. I'd like it to be, I know that that God is calling me to live that way. But I can't help but slip into that sense of competitiveness and start evaluating things again in a cost-benefit analysis type of mindset. So where do I go and what do I do? Well, I worship. And I do so with no sense of of expectation of anything in return. Well, I try to worship that way. I try to create a discipline in my life where when I'm worshiping, it's not about me. We can treat worship like a commodity. We need enough people coming and giving so we can keep our doors open. To give them a sense of connection while they're here, to be singing the right songs in the right way, uh, that our sermons have to be engaging enough, and we need to be running programs that make people feel good about themselves. But the gospel, when you think about it, isn't about making us feel good about ourselves. Worship, if it's a commodity, isn't worship, it's entertainment. I do laugh when I hear that people put more money in the offering when the sermon is on point or the music is inspirational or the church is actually doing the type of things that people think it should. But it also breaks my heart. The foundational scripture for me has been 2 Samuel 24 where we find King David being convicted to spend some time in worship and offering to God. And uh, a well-meaning person comes up to David and offers to pay the cost of preparing this worship and this time of worship for David. But David replies, matter-of-factly, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Worship shouldn't just cost us an hour on Sunday or the data to join online in the hope that we'll get the benefit of a bunch of songs we like, a cracking sermon, and the affirmation that we as a church are doing good things. Worship is bringing out everything to God just because God sees us in a way that nothing else or no one else in our world does. Fearfully and wonderfully made, loved, forgiven, chosen, a child of God, uniquely gifted, blessed, and so much more. And so we worship with no expectation of anything else. Because isn't that more than enough? I have learnt from experience and from trying to come in that type of mindset over a number of years, that when my heart and my head and my being is in that right attitude of worship, then I do find myself deriving benefits that I didn't expect. But it's so easy to flip that around and think, oh, I'm, I want to hear the next best sermon or learn the next best song to be, be taken to that next level. We need to read through scripture to see how God calls God's people to come as we are to bring our whole selves, not because we want to get something from God, but because God has given us everything already. As we worship in that sense of absolute deficit, focusing on nothing but Jesus for no expectation of reward, in a complete awareness of the magnificence of God, we start to move differently. We start to respond differently. We start to see others in the way that we are seen. And we do start to live more righteously. We start to regularly, authentically, and with less prompting, disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of of others. As we do, we are incarnating, we're bringing to life a beautifully compelling alternate way of life. You might be thinking to yourself, well, I can't do that. I'm too young or oh, I'm too old. I'm not talented enough. I don't have enough resources to share I'm way too busy and my life is too much of a mess. Well, I wonder if I can give you one example of a beautifully compelling alternate way of life that I encountered this week as an encouragement. I spent some time with one of the members of our church who this morning will be joining us online even though they are approaching the end of their life in constant pain and discomfort and can't understand why god hasn't taken them home yet they are at total peace and committed to living through the pain so that others might see their faith hope and confidence in jesus their close family members and their wider connection of friends both in the church and outside the church. And they are in absolute awe of the care that this church is showing to them. I couldn't help but find that beautifully compelling. I couldn't help but find that an alternate way of life. that can be done in the midst of pain towards the end of a life well lived. What also could be done in and through us? Can I pray? Loving God, you regularly challenge us with our sense of identity and purpose because we only get it half right most of the time. Help us, firstly, to see us as you see. That we are fearfully, wonderfully made. We are loved, forgiven, chosen, children of God, uniquely gifted and blessed. With so much to offer and to share in the world. But as we begin to see ourselves in a way that is completely Difference of the way that our world sees us. Help us to be challenged not to rest and stay in that space. To lift our eyes towards one another. That we might be generous with the way that we see others. We might look for glimpses of you and your Holy Spirit working in their lives. Come alongside them with encouragement and participate alongside them with your work in the world. Stretch us and shape us in new ways. Confront us at our inaction and our self focus. But excite us with the possibility of the difference that we can make in our world if we respond to your calling to live beautifully compelling alternate ta- ways of life in a world that needs to see such beauty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Or well, can I encourage you to worship just as you are, wherever you are, with no expectation, but to say thank you to God as we sing our next song.